All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this the 16th day of April 2019. Uh, always like to tell you that I write a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks and uh, would appreciate your subscription. Uh, your sub- subscriptions to, um, you can go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or call our office here in New York at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. Also like to encourage you to consider signing up for Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Go to chenpicks.com to do that. And I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. And uh, we'd like to invite you to keep your questions, comments, criticisms, whatever remarks you have coming along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions at number four, Taylor at gmail.com. We do want to thank our sponsors for making this show. And this uh, week we have two new sponsors. Well, actually, RN Resources is back as a sponsor. They've been with us before, and we'll be talking to Ivan Bebek, the company's executive chairman, in just a few minutes from now. Also joining us this week is Strike Point Gold. Uh, it is joining us for the first time, a new company that one I think has a great deal of promise, and both of those are companies that I cover in Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Besides those two new sponsors, Novo Resources, Miramont Resources, Great Bear Resources, and Klondike Gold are all sponsors for this week's show. I've titled today's show, Why Do Central Bank Counterfeiters Like Gold?, Today, we'll have Danielle DiMartino Booth with us, Ivan Bebek, and Michael Oliver also. Monetary counterfeiting is theft. That's why they put people in jail for doing it. But by way of force, central bankers do the same thing legally to the detriment of workers who produce goods and services. During a period of economic growth, not many care about the topic of central bank counterfeiting injustice But when the music stops and sudden liquidity and insolvency prevail, retribution follows. Beginning on page 209 of Danielle DiMartino's Booth's book, titled Fed Up, she explains how central bank quantitative easing sets up liquidity traps that are impossible to exit, again, demonstrated just recently by the Powell pivot. With an inevitably liquidity, with the inevitability of a liquidity crisis staring them in the face, Are central bankers once again counting on gold revaluation to bail them out, as they did in 1932? Well, some people think so, Um, but uh, we'll see what Danielle has to say about that topic and and others related to that as we talk to her in the second half of today's show. 
Ivan Bebek will update us on some exciting developments for RN resources in Peru. Really exciting things, I think, are taking place there. It is one of my favorite stocks personally, uh, and um, I own it personally. And, of course, as I said, it's recommended in my newsletter. But right now, I'm happy to tell you that the ever-reliable Michael Oliver is with us uh, to help us understand if we should get really worried about today's decline in the gold market. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Good to be back, Jay. Yeah, it is always good to have you. It's good to have you every week because you do have a way of helping us keep the markets in perspective. And a lot of us are a bit emotional. We see big moves in a given day and we say, "Uh uh-oh, and we exit way too soon, just about the time we ought to be adding to our positions rather than exiting. But uh, I should tell everyone, again, it's OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com, to really take advantage of what Michael uh, has to offer. He provides some, uh, some goodies to us here, but uh, if you really want to benefit, you need to get his daily missives, almost daily, almost every day, he sends something out uh, on one market or the other, um, uh, especially if you're a subscriber to his uh, to his more extensive service. There's just endless numbers of markets that he provides great advice uh, for, uh, about those markets. So, Michael, you know, we're seeing quite a day in the gold markets today, not a good one for those of us that are bullish. Um, how are you looking at things now in the in the market? The gold market. Well, we uh, we recognize the corrective process that's been underway actually since the December high, late December, it traded over thirteen hundred on the front month gold, gained some more ground into uh, January, February, get up to thirteen forty plus. But there've been quite a few sell-offs since the December high, February high, March high. The, uh, you know, thirty forty dollar swings downside that don't get any traction. Mm-hmm. In the process of that action price action of, the, of gold, it has set up an orthodox, what the price charters call a head and shoulder top. Mm-hmm. And this spans going back to late December anyway. And you can, if you see it, it's, it's almost a perfect one. It couldn't be better, textbook. So, you know, we respect price chart analysis, but uh, as a secondary attribute of market analysis, we, we look at momentum primarily of price. And often, momentum action, when you plot it, either agrees or doesn't agree with what Price is attempting to say or doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and frankly, right now, the momentum action since late December is aged on the downside, meaning there's mm-hmm. been enough downswings in momentum that have set up a structure. That if you looked at the momentum chart, you see a trend line coming down across too many highs, meaning that it's defined a line that if you uptick not far, you can mm-hmm. break out over that line and resume the momentum upside that was uh, existed through January high. Mm-hmm. Uh, price doesn't show that. Price shows an opposite pattern. It shows what's called a head and shoulder top. Today is the very first day that all the price guys can now scream, top completed. Ah. It broke below what's called the neckline. It's a line up under the flat lows of the last several months. And mm-hmm. you not only broke below it, you closed below it. Okay, now that's, so the price chart is screaming, sell me. Mm-hmm. Momentum is saying, uh-uh, not so fast. It's not confirming. Momentum is not making a lower low than it did during his other sell-offs. Uh, and it's also very aged. And also, if you look across the page at silver, while it's been sort of anemic compared to gold uh, over the last several years, actually silver's trading where it was in March, at the March low. March low mm-hmm. close was, uh, let's see, it was 1496. Well, mm-hmm. right now, May, silver's trading 1496 and a half. So silver's mm-hmm. not quite participating in what you see on the gold chart 
In fact, if you're an orthodox price chart technician and you're looking only at silver, you see a potential uh, falling wedge pattern, which is mm-hmm. a bullish orthodox price pattern. It's not a negative mm-hmm. one. So you've got two con- contrasting views of what's going on in these markets with silver actually having a bullish pending pattern where gold has this scary one. So we caution our subscribers that, one, we don't flip-flop. If we see a break that we think is serious and likely to end the positive annual momentum trend of gold, we'll issue a a warning uh, and and we'll specify a number. But we're not there, and we don't think this break is going to get us there. Uh, So... Anyway, I, I, as a bull on gold, I kind of liked what happens today. But mm-hmm. what it did is it broke the obvious price chart pattern. Now let's see if it really has muscle on the downside or is All it right. simply a fake out. So it's probably uh, a lot of price chart guys are saying, wow, I'm, I'm glad. I'm, I'm out of well, here sure. now. Or, uh, huh? Yep. Sell no this, sell this thing for sure. Chest. It's a dog. All it's I can going say down. Is they better keep the action below that neckline. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll be watching in those... Of course, subscribers of yours will be kept up to date on that, and as soon as there's something significant happening, you'll be sending out missives to them, right? Right. Well, we we don't switch polarity on gold very often. We turned very bearish uh, in 2011, uh, excuse me, early 2012, uh, just below 1,700, stayed bearish all that year, and finally the collapse came in 2013, and we didn't turn bullish again until February of 2016. And based on annual momentum, and we remain bullish. So uh, we don't flip-flop every other month. If you did, you'd be in and out of gold 20 times in the last two years. Uh, well, exactly you'd, you'd, right, and that's one of the reasons <laughs> I appreciate your work so much, uh, I, so much because it, it does keep me stable. I mean, I'm one that looks at uh, gold mining shares, and I, um, and I want to know, am I, in a, in a major, am I in a major bull market? Should I stay there for the term? Or do I need to look at an exit? Because we know that in these bull markets, junior mining stocks rise very dramatically. The whole index goes up four or five times over a number of years. But in a very short period of time, uh, the index loses 80% of its value. I'm talking about the junior mining companies now, not the senior guys. So I'm really depending on you, Michael, to help me and my listeners and my subscribers to know when it's time to get out. And, of course, your subscribers are going to have the benefit of having constant feedback from you. Uh, and that's why people should really go to OliverMSA.com to keep up with uh, with Michael's work. Well, Michael, just with a minute left here, regarding the uh, S&P 500, uh, you know, you, you look at that at that chart again. You can look at I think a head and shoulders uh, sort of looks like it may be forming uh, a bearish head and shoulders for the S&P 500. Uh, but you can also make the case that it isn't there yet. And that we could get through that right shoulder and maybe onward and upward to something better than ever. Uh, what are your momentum charts telling you with respect well, to the uh, S&P 500? We are totally agnostic and have no interest in the S&P 500 or developing economy stock markets anymore ever since 2018's top. If we uh-huh. make a marginal new high in the S&P, and we, we're open to that possibility, uh, the last high was 2940 plus in September, uh, we could see it going up easily to 3,000 if it wants to. Annual momentum says... Do not participate. It's likely a, a trap. Also, for the price chart guys, uh, Edwards and McGee wrote the book, you know, 60-some-odd years ago, Technical Analysis of Stock Trends. And they have a pattern called the widening top, which involves three consecutive highs that are each higher than the prior and lower lows. And if you look at the S&P action over the last year and a half, it's developing a potential widening top pattern, where if you actually go up and make the new high, 
roughly 3,000 area, um, you've got a potential widening top pattern, and it, it occurs in bull markets, especially aged bull markets, mm-hmm. and it's indicative of a market that has lost sense of direction. Meaning when it sells off, it can take out prior lows. When it goes up, it can take out prior highs, but not really go anywhere. Uh, and it's dissipating its energy, so to speak. So uh, I'm not sure whether we make a new high in the S&P, but if we do, we still don't trust it. Momentum says do not trust it. Uh, uh, the markets we like in stocks are emerging markets in China. Mm-hmm. All right. Totally different well, Yep, absolutely. Well, we'll have to leave it go at that. Thanks again, Michael, for being with us and sharing your insights. It's always very helpful uh, to uh, soothe our nerves on a day like today when that gold is going down so dramatically, or seems dramatic anyway, uh, to those of us that watch it. Thank you very much. All right, folks, so don't go away. Ivan Bebek of RN Resources, he's the executive chairman of that company. That's a very exciting story developing in Peru, and they'll have some things going on uh, also north of us as well. That is up in the Nunavut section of uh, province of Canada. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Ivan Bebek. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Nobo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Nobo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQB, is a gold exploration company focused on their wholly owned Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Ontario, Canada. Recent drill results yielded an impressive 1,600 grams per ton gold over 0.7 meters near surface. GBR is fully funded to drill 300 plus holes this year. McEwen Mining is a significant shareholder following a $5.7 million investment as part of a recent $10 million financing. Visit greatbearresources.ca. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Ivan Bebek, the executive chairman of RN Resources. And RN Resources uh, can be purchased in Toronto or New York under the symbol AUG. 94.5 million shares outstanding, $1.62 in U.S. money, giving it a market cap of uh, US, uh, around U.S. $153 million. And the stock certainly has, uh, has done very well since the start of this year, one of the better performers uh, in the exploration sector uh, for sure. 
Welcome, Ivan, and thanks for joining me again. Thanks for having me back, Jay. Pleasure to be here. Always good to have you uh, give us your latest on what's going on in one of my favorite companies, uh, one that I follow in my newsletter and keep my subscribers uh, up to date on as much as possible. So your shares have almost doubled since the beginning of January. What's, what's going on? All right. Well, you know, as you know, Jay, we set out four years ago to go find a, a major deposit. And we, we started up north in our Committee Bay project and didn't have access to a project called Sombrero in Peru up until about a year and a half ago. And as we got on to this project, um, you know, the, the dream of finding a, a big mine started to come true. And we had a chance to take a lot of samples off the surface, um, draw some really strong analogs to major mines nearby. And we think we have one of the, the industry's biggest discoveries potentially on hand in the last uh, couple of decades. So um, Sombrero is a, a copper gold, predominantly SCARN and porphyry deposit or target. And its analog is uh, Las Bombas, which if you're not familiar with, sold for $8 billion in 2014, the same year we sold Caden. Um, you know, from that, $6 billion was the actual metal content. And uh, this deposit was 1.7 billion tons of copper equivalent, that was copper molybdenum that averaged 0.6% copper. If you mm-hmm. caught our most recent news, you know, one of our, our surface sampling efforts sampled about 100 or 232 meters of 0.5.5% copper, of which 40 meters runs about 1.25% copper in that, you know, sampling, you know, trench on surface. So, you know, it, it kind of revealed, you know, something that's really important in the copper world is volume and grade existing mm-hmm. on surface. And if you follow gold projects in the exploration phase, a lot of times when you drill them, the gold goes away when you get beneath surface, to be real simple about it. In the copper world, copper doesn't go away when you drill it. It generally is a lot more homogenous, and you can expect to see similar grade subsurface, although it does carry other risks when you see a lot of good grade copper on surface. Um, we think that there's been enough windows, and we haven't chosen where to sample, that windows of exposure have given us where we can sample, but you know the surface samples are a 10 out of 10 so far, and the analogs of the scale of systems is simply massive. Yeah, it is massive, 120 hectares, I believe, the, the project is. and. 120,000 hectares, yes. I'm sorry, 120,000 hectares, what am I talking about? I forgot three zeros there, <laughs> didn't I? Uh, yes, no it's massive. 120 hectares would be nothing to brag about. 120,000 yeah. certainly is. Uh, so I'm wondering, the 55, the, the 0.55% copper, uh, is there a gold element to that? Yeah, it's copper gold. That's a great question. You know, on the eastern side of this belt where you see Las Bombas, Tintaya, and Tikapai, some of Peru's largest porphyry and scarn deposits, it's predominantly base metals, copper moly. Um, we're dealing with copper gold. You know, we've sampled up to almost 200 grams gold, an ounce gold, half an ounce gold in several areas. So we mm-hmm. see a lot of gold showing up in this specific, uh, you know, effort. It was about 0.15 grams of gold over 232 meters. If you look at that in, in a scale, and we think, you know, as a target, our first target on this area of the property would be a billion ton type of ore body. You know, if you've managed 0.15 grams per ton gold, that's about 20 million ounces or more equivalent of gold that would be in that deposit alongside the billions of pounds of copper. So, you know, it's, it seems insignificant in grade 0.15 gold yeah. but when you talk about potentially having a billion tons and potentially having 20 million ounces of gold, it's substantial for the gold credit. You know, it's, it's one of those things that's going to carry a lot of value for us if it's uh, continues. For sure. Well, uh, you know, I've seen in your press releases a couple of different targets there. 
uh, a sombrero. The sombrero main target in the, uh, I guess you pronounce it Ferrazzo target. Uh, can you talk Correct, about those? Yeah. And and then and then perhaps um, have you do you have more targets? I mean, you must have a lot more targets, I believe, probably on this massive sombrero project. Yeah. To to be honest, um, you know, there's a comment I made recently in an, in a, an interview I did that got posted on Bloomberg where. I talked about us underestimating the potential of Sombrero. And what I was referring to, which is exactly your point, is we're looking at Sombrero, Maine as the first area where we're going to drill here shortly in the next few months. And Furaso would be um, you know, adjacent to Sombrero, Maine. But there are this, this would be considered one cluster. And so far, we found five clusters in about 10 or 15% of the entire 120,000 hectares. And so when we talk about an analog to Sombrero, we're classifying that by the first cluster. There's four more clusters that we've seen a lot of copper and gold. I think the word fertility, you know, very fertile copper and gold and systems on top of these other clusters that we haven't even gotten to yet. So we're going by what we have access to right now. And we were pretty ambitious and diligent to do a lot of focused work on the first major center, which is where our work is. But you know, it's less than 10% of the entire land position, and it's only about 15% that we've had a first look at. And if you look at some of our other press releases or some of our material, there's something called NEOC, and there's 9 grams gold and 5%, sorry, 9% copper, 5 grams gold. There's 2 grams gold, 4% copper on some outcropping mineralization that has a massive target underneath it with strong magnets or magnetite indicating potential scar and porphyry. These are the rocks mm-hmm. that we believe are going to host some of these major deposits. And there's been a, a lot of scrutiny on Sombrero. Majors looked at this about 10 years before we got it, and nobody ever did the detailed work. And, um, you know, people saw a lot of volcanic cover, as did we, and they saw some high-grade copper and gold, and they assumed, you know, potentially smaller systems with, you know, high-grade centers in them that weren't going to carry the volume. But what we've done, and if you look at a, a series of press releases we've put out, if you watch the video on our homepage, we're demonstrating the scale of Las Bombas in the first cluster um, with several surface samples trenching all the same rocks that occur at Las Bombas in terms of limestone, intrusive contacts and sediments. Everything looks correct. The age of the rocks seems identical to what's happening at the Las Bombas district. So every ingredient is there. The only change or difference we're seeing is that we're copper gold and they were copper molly, which obviously mm-hmm. we prefer gold as a second credit to a major copper deposit than molybdenum. But Truly, uh, Jay, this is early days of potentially a major discovery with a pipeline of four or five more that could be there potentially behind it. And that's the word district. And that's something that we've identified with our former Newmont Global Exploration Team. We've Mm -hmm. always set out to go find big things in the mindset of a major and screening 7,000 square kilometers to assemble this land position, you know, and get to this point and actually go outside the box and go somewhere where people thought, you know, the right rocks weren't there and find them has truly been a, a real, real big achievement. And, and lastly, I'll point out um, the amount of corporate interest we've gotten on this project, you know, the CAs that we're signing, the visits we're doing with major mining companies. And there seems to be a common reaction of, oh, we had no idea, you know, this was going to turn out like this. And if you look at samples last year, 109 meters of 0.7, 232 mm-hmm. meters of copper gold equivalent. I mean, these are spectacular, you know, exposures that we're getting. And I have to emphasize, Jay, that we are not sampling the rocks we want to sample. We're sampling the rocks that are exposed on surface. Mm -hmm. So that gives Mm -hmm. us a lot of ambition 
to think that when we get into the sweet spots of the system, there could be some real substantial drill intercepts as we move forward. Right. You In a recent press release, April 3rd, you talked about the, the iron mine there at the Ferrazzo uh, and the dumps. Uh, there were dumps there. Then you sampled up to 3.26% copper, 1.2 uh, grams per ton gold. Uh, is, is that telling you something about, because I think so far you've just been doing channel samplings and I, I guess probably oxide material. Do you see sulfides? Your, your geologists see the potential then for sulfides, something rich, really rich in copper and gold at depth that, that could take question, you to something man. like Las, Las Bombas? I mean, it's, I mean, Las Bombas is just so exciting. If you've got anything like that, uh, you know, we're, we've got a moonshot on our hands here, possibly. I mean, I, I can't say we have it yet because you've got a lot of work to do. But Yeah, on, the, on that note, Jay, um, the great question and, and the one thing that people have been asking us, you know, you're seeing a lot of high-grade copper in the oxide part of the system, and the concern would be that it's enrichment. And what that would mean is that the rocks beneath the copper, you know, in the oxide system uh, don't have the same mm-hmm. grade of copper or they're, they're somewhat barren, and then you would lose the scale of the system really quickly, and you'd have a, a smaller high-grade copper system, right, potentially. Um, what we've seen in our Corrales Trench, which was 109 meters of 0.7, we had a, a sulfide portion of that trench that was exposed and uh, just due to weathering. And so that sampled 1.9% over 30 meters, which is even higher grade than we're seeing uh-huh. in a lot of the oxide parts of the system. Um, there's an area called Good Lucky, and it's in our presentation. You can see the side of a cliff. That entire cliff is all sulfide, and it goes down 400 meters in depth. So, you know, we have a tremendous amount of confidence that the sulfide continues in the dumps, we're sampling oxide, but we've been talking to the, the former miner who mined the iron ore there, and they said they saw a lot of presence of uh, sulfide as well. So, you know, without going too far, we're still collecting data off the property. I think that the one message I would send is there's absolutely no concern of ours that there's a big sulfide component. And what we've seen so far in the areas we've been able to sample sulfide is the same grade and possibly higher grades in the sulfide. And so, when you think of a copper system that has, you know, an oxide portion, a sulfide portion, think of volume when you think sulfide, volume of mm-hmm. grade. And then the next question you have to ask yourself, is the grade improving, staying the same, or is it a little bit or a lot less? And so far, it's staying the same or it's improving. So, yeah, this is why we're, we've got a bit of a tailwind. Um, you know, it's, it's gathering a lot of corporate compliments from other major base metal companies that are, are recognizing mm-hmm. it. No real challenges except for just to get a drill or get some drill data. The only thing missing from this project is that third dimension. And if we can get a hole into it, you know, the model is going to validate much quicker than a gold system. And, you know, what we want to see here is we want to see what happens in the scarring part of the system, which is generally the higher grade portions. We want to see how wide is it and how far does it go for. And so far, we've mapped seven and a half kilometers of scarring through magnetics and chargeability as well. And so what that's telling us is the right type of rock goes for a huge distance. We see thick thicknesses of up to 150 meters thick by 100 meters wide. You know, these are substantial scar and signatures. The multi-billion dollar question for us is, are these carrying copper and gold in them? And sometimes these magnetic signatures can come off magnetite that's carrying pyrite, other sulfide metals, or, you know, an aquifer or clays could set this off as well. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we're really looking 
forward to our first drill hole, if it runs copper gold in it the way we're seeing on surface in a substantial amount, then you can put the math together very quickly. And, um, you know, we anticipate that to be the case, but we're going to need that next layer of evidence to really say it with confidence in the market. And we certainly wouldn't be trading at our current share price if that was the case right now. You know, we're just about out of time here. I got to ask you very quickly, how soon do you expect to drill at Sombrero? And secondly, then, if you could just comment uh, real quickly on what you're expecting to do at Nunavut and your Committee Bay project. Yeah, so real quickly, uh, drilling is in process. We're in the system. We expect to have permits in August, uh, give or take a month for just, you know, it's it's a process that we don't directly control. And so it'd be between July and September, I think is fair with an August as a target month. Um, secondly, on Committee Bay, you're going to see a press release shortly. It's going to identify the next steps and what the AI is achieving. It's going to reveal a lot more of how impactful the machine learning is being for us. And so we haven't made any drilling plans for Committee Bay yet. We don't need to till the end of May. Right now, our clear focus and all the attention is going towards Sombrero. Um, Obviously, with weaker metal prices or equity markets, we're going to be really ambitious with a low-cost, high-reward project like Sombrero. But if the market turns positive in the golds and we see room to go and be aggressive at Committee Bay, we'd, we'd certainly consider that. But as of right now, our focus is on Sombrero. Look forward to a lot of news coming out. Uh, next week will be a home stake update as well as Committee Bay, followed by a lot more news out of Peru in May as we get really close to this real program. All right. Sounds really exciting. I can't wait. Uh, as an investor, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Uh, for being with us again, Ivan, and uh, we'll look to keep up with you going forward into the future. Thanks so much for having me today. Real appreciate it. You bet. Well, thanks. Uh, well, that's it. Uh, we got to go to commercial break now, but don't go away because Danielle DiMartino Booth will be with us uh, to talk about the markets. And specifically, I want to ask her, why do central bank counterfeiters like gold? We'll be right back with Danielle DiMartino Booth. has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. Oren Resources is a copper gold exploration company pursuing the world's next major discoveries. It has seven projects, including two active flagships, Committee Bay in northern Canada and Sombrero in southern Peru. This summer will be one of the most exciting times in Oren's history as the company turns the drill at Sombrero for the first time ever. The project's impressive surface results have identified Sombrero as an analog to one of Peru's biggest mines. Oren is also implementing cutting-edge machine learning technology to unlock its highly prospective gold belt at Committee Bay. Visit OrenResources.com and subscribe to keep up with the company's busy year ahead. Voice America Business Network the bottom line in business. You're 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again Danielle DiMartino Booth. Uh, she is uh, perhaps best known these days as a commentator uh, on the Federal Reserve policy at uh, uh, places like CNBC, Fox Business, and Bloomberg, and she has uh, had considerable experience on Wall Street in the past with Donaldson, Lufkin, Generet years ago, Credit Suisse, uh, and also... Um, she was a financial columnist at uh, Dallas Morning News uh, and also, of course, uh, most recently uh, spending some nine years uh, as a key advisor to Richard Fisher at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. So, And she's also written a book that this is how I learned to know her, Fed Up, the book Fed Up, which is an excellent read. And I would strongly suggest it to my listeners that they get a copy of it and read it. It was uh, written a couple of years ago, but it's still, I think, very apropos to what's going on. Um, you know, uh, so that is, uh, we'd also suggest that you consider signing up for her daily feather letter, which I have done. Uh, it's excellent. If you really consider yourself to be a serious investor, one who wants to understand what's going on in the markets, uh, that is a must read from my point of view. It's dmartinobooth.com, dmartinobooth.com to sign up, learn it, learn more about her service and sign up for the uh, for that service. So thank you for joining me again, Danielle. So happy to be here today. Happy to have you. Um, you know, I've titled this, today's show, Why Do Central Bank Counterfeiters Like Gold? And as uh, as we discussed before we went on the show, that central bankers cannot be counterfeiters because counterfeiters, by definition, are people that break the law and create money outside of the law. And central bankers, of course, operate within the law. My argument is that, in, in essence, mechanically, central banks are doing much the same thing. They're doing it legally, but they're doing much the same thing on a much larger scale than the mafia Don is who's creating illegal money out of his uh, basement printing press or whatever. Uh, so that that may sound argumentative. I don't mean to be um, – I mean, this is, I guess, something maybe Ron Paul would have said on this show years ago. Um, but in any event, yeah, uh, no, and it's in, and and the problem was that a few years ago you could have argued both sides. Uh, you, you could have you could have engaged in a really heated debate on this subject, but today you really can't because Jay Powell has broadcast to the world that beginning in May and ending in September, the effort to shrink the balance sheet will have failed. And that it will stop somewhere around 3.5. I would guess that it would be bigger, 3.6 trillion or so. So every dime that the Federal Reserve purchased in its quantitative easing years that it was not able to then unwind, as was promised by Ben Bernanke, as was promised by Janet Yellen, as was po- promised by autopilot Jay Powell, uh, every dime that they cannot unwind is technical monetization of the debt. Because if you can't get rid of it, then you've monetized it. Mm-hmm. 
so they can't go they can't go in reverse any longer it's only one direction right more and more printing press money or which leads me to another question. Ben Bernanke, uh, it was in page, I think, eight, chapter 18 of your book. You quoted Ben Bernanke, who said, one myth that's out there is that what we're doing is, is printing money. We're not printing money. Of course we're not. We're creating digits in computer systems, right? Or do you think Bernanke was just playing on the ignorance of the American people, 99% of whom have no understanding at all about how money is magically created? Oh no! I um, no, and this is this is actually going to be more disturbing. And I was on the inside at the time. Ben Bernanke believed what he was saying. Uh huh. You know, you're 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 stepping you're stepping over a cliff. You're embarking upon the biggest monetary experiment in the history of mankind, and you're telling yourself that you're going to give investors in the market something that they're going to enjoy. And that then when you want to go and take it away, that investors are going to welcome you with open arms and say, okay, you gave us the stimulus, you can have, the, you, you, you can have your tightening, we'll, we'll put it in a beautiful box and we'll, 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 we'll seal it with a bow. Not how it happened. Yeah, so I guess he was buying the Keynesian notion that you could actually stimulate growth and money and things would be humming along so well interest rates would be rising but nobody would care because there was so much affluence so much cash flow so much so many profits that could easily service the interest rates that was the theory right it indeed was a theory and every single time you know i i can read the lips of the people on bubble vision every time the 10 year starts to flirt with 3% i mm-hmm. i can read their lips i don't even have to turn it off mute I can hear them in concert saying rising interest rates are a reflection of a strengthening economy. Yeah. And I'm always like, let's, let's see how long that lasts. And usually it lasts until around 3.25%, maybe even north of that, before all hell breaks loose and, you know, you wake up one morning and you're the head of a central bank and you're like, oh, gee, we lost Turkey overnight, a whole country. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, the... the the myth of rising interest rates reflecting a strong economy is something that was created by modern-day central bankers who made investors and economies much too reliant on cheap money such that now they cannot get off the morphine drip. It's, it's, mm-hmm. off, it's, it's despicable because people inside the Fed at the time knew what was happening, protested, and were told by mainly academics we know what we're doing. We'll be able to unwind this experiment when the time comes. Don't you worry. Certainly, your boss, Richard Fisher, you know, was one of the few people that was objecting, especially after, after the first quantitative easing. I think he was, I remember seeing him on television raising questions about the ability to exit this system, uh, exit this, uh, the, the QE. He seemed to have some insights. You must have as well as an advisor to him. Well, were you... Had- were you I, I do count myself among one of his chief advisors, so he was, he was getting some good guidance. <laughs> so he, he had an inkling that this wasn't going to be easy to unwind it, right? Well, of course. I mean, we had seen, we, we had seen in, you know, since 1987, when Alan Greenspan first intervened in, in functioning markets by leaking information to bond trading desks in the aftermath of the 1987 stock market crash, uh, he began to leak information about Fed intentions to inject liquidity into the system in advance to bond trading desks on Wall Street. 
And people wonder why markets came roaring back after 1987. It's because mm-hmm. Fed, moral hazard, the Fed put, the Greenspan put, however you want to put it, that was born in the days that followed uh, the 1987 stock market crash. And what Richard and I both knew was that every iteration, every cycle of lower for longer, you had to be lower for even longer to get the same bang for your monetary buck. And we've certainly seen that because every bubble has gotten bigger and every interest rate levels, at each, each bubble, the interest rates levels have declined. Um, and what happens when we go to zero or below zero? How is this going to play out, Danielle? Well, I, I think Wall Street's already chit-chatting about it. Uh, this, this is cocktail party chatter is yeah. what the first round of quantitative easing is going to look like. You know, surely it's not going to be that $85 billion number that it was back in uh, October of 2014 because times have changed, right? We need, we need more digits. So yeah. you know, the, the, the running number right now is that they'll start at 100 or more billion per month and that they can stop growing the balance sheet at 8 or $9 trillion. And these are the things that markets are seriously anticipating right now, which explains the stock market's resilience. Um, but there's only one direction for things, and I just can't, I can't get my head around how it's going to end and um, what, what starts to happen. I mean, of course, in, in, in Japan uh, and in Germany, you have negative rates. Um, I mean, how does the world function in a, nervative, in a negative rate environment? What, what's, I don't, how can markets, how can free markets exist in, in a negative rate uh, regime, and how can... Uh, and how can capital be allocated at all efficiently? Well, I, I think we're hearing out of European banks that they have long since hit their pain threshold. They're having a very hard time staying in business in, in these types of environments. I think that that's one of the reasons the European Central Bank has been lobbied so hard by the banks to find a way of letting them escape from this negative interest rate regime and the you know the ECB is is frightened of its own shadow and knows that it would probably take the country of Italy down it, un, under such scenarios if it was to try and raise interest rates. That's how that's how much worse the situation gets if you allow the situation to go into negative interest rate territory. That's mm-hmm. the flip side of it is that Germany makes money on its debt on its national debt. It makes money. That's incredible. That's the flip side. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, on page two hundred nine of your of your book, you mentioned a remark that Richard Fisher made to Ron Paul. Uh, essentially, I'm paraphrasing. He said, "Don't spend your energy to end the Fed," because Ron had just written the book "End the Fed." Uh, rather, use your resources to implement some f- uh, fiscal rectitude back to the federal government. Um, but I'm wondering if how is that going to be done because. Uh, I know that you, David Stockman, for example, as well, who's been on the show, believe that governments should just get tough. They should just start to be reasonable and, and, and realize that debt is going to destroy you over the longer run. But these politicians aren't really interested in the long run. They're interested in the next elections. And, of course, um, heads of uh, CEOs of companies are interested in the next quarter's earnings more than anything else. How do you – how on the earth – where is the discipline going to come from? Um, just 
I mean, do you expect people just to be reasonable and, and learn and be educated and start to politicians all of a sudden start to deny the candy to their to their children to their childish voters or, or how's this going to work? Oh gosh, are you are you asking me if a politician is going to be more fiscally conservative than a central banker? <laughs> I'm just trying to make sure I've got the question down because I I, I can't even. I, I just can't wrap my, my head around the concept. I mean, yeah. that's why when people blow up on my Twitter feed and they're like, oh my gosh, the, 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 the Fed is going to start buying corporate bonds or the Fed is going to start buying stocks. And you say to yourself, that would take an act of Congress. And then you're like, oh, wait, Congress would happily pass laws for the Fed to buy whatever it needed to buy to get them reelected. Mm-hmm. They had no spines. Well, that's right. They have no spine, and they're just always looking for the easy way out. And so my question is, how in the world do we ever, you know, like Richard Fisher was saying to Ron Paul, essentially, that uh, don't don't waste your time trying to get rid of the Fed. And Ron would have gone back to a gold standard, uh, something like that, I think. He would, be, he would favor. Um, so how on the earth are we ever going to get back to fiscal rectitude? Or is it going to be imposed on us by some calamity? Ah, now you're talking. And I hate, you know, hyperbole, it's not, it's not my thing. But if you look, if you read the political tea leaves and you look at the demographics of the country and the sheer millions and millions of millennials who would be in favor of effectively printing money to, mm-hmm. for, the, for the express purpose of, of financing fiscal, uh, fiscal little... Uh, the escapades, such as forgiving yeah. all student loans or mm-hmm. health care for all or universal basic income. Yeah, if or the New Green Deal. were to succeed, and they were, they, were, they, were, they were to be able to contract out the Fed to just rev up the printing presses, I think that that will result in an eventual loss of reserve currency status if we let it go that far. I, I pray mm-hmm. God for my children's sake and their children's sake that, that we don't go there. That mm-hmm. at some point somebody says, enough is enough, I, I don't want my grandchildren speaking Mandarin, and pushes back. Mm-hmm. Well, losing reserve currency status is something that empires eventually do. Uh, it certainly seems to me it's, it's very interesting that China and Russia, uh, the countries uh, primarily that are considered adversaries of the United States, are building up their gold reserves very dramatically. They're trying to find ways outside of the SWIFT system outside of the Western banking system. They're setting up their, uh, their own trading infrastructure, trying to protect themselves, and, as I understand it, uh, hoping to get out of the dollar one way or another. China uh, can't do it quickly, of course. Russia has, has reportedly sold most, if not all, of their treasuries and are buying gold. Um, I'm just wondering, to what extent does the Federal Reserve think about those those factors when it makes its policies. Uh, you know, I I I think that uh, that that same level of deniability that I described earlier when it comes to Bernanke that that Bernanke believed what his models were telling him that that they would mm-hmm. be able to unwind quantitative easing as easily as they had wound it up. I believe that there's some semblance of that same naivete inside of central banks such that they don't feel that they will ever be threatened by anything that radicals talk about. And that's how they couch it. 
They mm-hmm. couch it as being radical arguments, and that's what makes it that much more ironic when when Jay Powell goes up in front of the Congress of the United States and he asks if he would advocate for modern monetary theory and says, absolutely not. We, we, debt must have its limits. We can't just just take on debt like drunken sailors. And you say to yourself, but at the same time, you're talking about more QE. What do you mm-hmm. think is going to, what, 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 what do you think planted the seed in the first place mm-hmm. in the socialist politicians' minds in this country? If you mm-hmm. hadn't have done QE to show them, to demonstrate the efficacy and the execution of MMT you know, mm-hmm. in order to bail out Wall Street. Why, why right. on earth wouldn't politicians say, let's bail out Main Street for a change? But it is a very slippery slope. Right. And you, uh, a Trump presidency uh, would be leaning in that direction as well. That is you to know, bail out Main the Street. Thing is, if, if we have if we have, have seen and heard calls for uh, from from people who are close to President Bush to lower interest rates by a half percentage point, uh, mm-hmm. if, if President Trump himself is saying, "I'm just as deserving as quantitative easing as my predecessor," mm-hmm. he is of course referring back to September the thirteenth, two thousand. Um, 2016, when Ben Bernanke announced quantitative easing QE3, QE infinity, within weeks of the presidential election, and and Trump is saying if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. If mm-hmm. if you Joe Q Fed helped elect Obama, then why can't excuse me helped reelect Obama? Then why can't you help reelect me? Let's just all play by the same rules. As perverse as that whole thing sounded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it is perverse, but you know, and during the of course during the campaign, uh, Trump was uh, was railing against the advantages that that uh, uh, that Obama had uh, with low interest rates, and and he decried oh, and that. The, but, the, the Fed was blowing bubbles, and we needed we needed higher interest rates, even though he was a debt guy. And it's again, there's nothing well, quite like power that corrupts as absolutely as power, and I mm-hmm. think that we've seen that with the unfortunate metamorphosis of Jay Powell, who, when he was a rookie in 2012, understood full well that mm-hmm. QE would become habit-forming, quote-unquote, because that's the word that, that Jay Powell himself used. Mm-hmm. Well, if Jay Powell goes in, and I know you were a fan of his until he pivoted, uh, somebody like that understands, uh, whereas Bernanke maybe didn't understand. He, he believed what he was taught in the universities, but Jay Powell was seeing things, I think, a little more clearly, I think. Um, but now he recants or goes along with the program. Who's really calling the shots, Danielle? Is it just the fear of the markets well, the and what's is, going to happen because we've gotten ourselves into such such dire straits with so much debt? Well, if you look at the exposure, if you look at the percentage of the economy that is now accounted for by by household net worth of stocks versus household net worth of real estate. Mm-hmm. The, the fact that stocks are bigger in that picture than, than real estate is so unusual historically. 1968, 1999, these are the only two instances that household net worth in stocks 
was greater than what households owned in real estate. But it also tells you that this is when the economy is the most dependent upon the stock market hanging in there, literally. Because if it doesn't, it's going to take the whole, the whole economy down with it. Mm-hmm. So it's, this, is, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy that is born of very misguided Fed policy that now it's not just investors who view QE and, as Powell said, as being habit-forming. It's the whole darn economy. But to, to what extent is, is Congress really uh, lording it over the Fed? Or are there other factors? For example, I believe that the Fed is owned by, uh, by the various district banks, right? Well, you know, it's a complicated answer, and I should answer this very, very, very carefully. The most powerful people at the Federal Reserve are in Washington, D.C. They're on the Federal Reserve Board. Uh, They have permanent votes on the Federal Open Market Committee. They are full-blown government employees. Their email addresses end in .gov. Mm -hmm. The district banks, the 12 district banks scattered throughout the country, have uh, banks as shareholders in those district banks. They're paid something of about a 6% dividend, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. As shareholders, they're paid a dividend out of the operating revenue of each mm-hmm. individual Federal Reserve Bank, after mm-hmm. which point operating costs are covered, and every last penny after that is remitted to the U.S. Treasury. Mm-hmm. So as a district employee of the Dallas Fed, as I was, my mm-hmm. email address ended in .org, because mm-hmm. we, uh, the, 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 district, the district banks were quasi-public-private entities. The reason I'm taking such pains to answer this question is because there's been a little bit of damage over the years by the creature from Jekyll Island. I'm trying, I'm, I probably just destroyed that book title name. But there's been a little bit of misinformation that's been put out there that the Federal Reserve is owned by bankers. Yes, in part only in the districts, and those district presidents only get a vote every three years. The power seat is populated by government employees, and that needs to be known. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so the government has the, the, main, the main say in, in things, in the direction of the Fed, and it's easy to understand then because the politicians, they want to give their goodies, their candy to voters every two years at least, right? Of course. I mean, that is the, the minute mid- midterms came and went, uh, you know, it was, it was fairly apparent that because there was so much gridlock baked into the cake, that each side of the aisle was just going to march off and start campaigning for the presidential campaign and not even try and pretend to legislate. So that, right, is, just, that is what our country's become. All right. We're just, uh, we're basically out of time here. So I have to ask you, uh, you know, Ron Paul's solution would be end the Fed and go back to some sort of a monetary, a gold-backed monetary system, asset-based monetary system rather than uh, – and you would say to what to that suggestion? I would say that it's not a practical solution. I think the Fed needs to be taken down to the studs. I think it needs to be populated by just a handful of academics, not 800 PhDs. And I think for the sake of national security, given what the Chinese would do 
to an unprotected financial system if we were to end the Fed. If, if they can do what they've proven they can do to our intellectual property, I would hate to see what the Chinese could do to an unprotected banking system. So I'm just to the left of Ron Paul in his idea to end the Fed. I think we should upend the Fed. Upend the Fed and, and populate it with a, just a handful, but I would hope they would be people that are practical enough not just academics, but practical enough people that understand markets and preferably free markets. Absolutely. Look at, look at Professor Bob Schiller out of Yale University. There's a practical person, if I've ever you know, known one in my life. Why wouldn't somebody like that be a much better candidate than somebody who's never actually visited planet Earth? Their passport's right. not even stamped. All right. Very good. Thank you so much, uh, Danielle, for being with us again. Always a pleasure. You're always a, a, a great, interesting guest. Thank you for being with us once again. Well, folks, that is all the time we have for this week. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, Next week, uh, Jeff Dice of the Mises Institute will be with us, Michael Oliver as well, and uh, a surprise guest. So until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Strike Point Gold, trading under SKP on the TSX and STKXF on the OTC, has a market cap of under $10 million. Strike Point is a new player in the Golden Triangle of BC and Canada. Focus will be on drilling the Willoughby Project in 2019. Prior drilling delivered over 20 meters of 25 grams per ton gold and 184 grams per ton silver. Recent receding glaciers have identified new gold targets. Neighboring projects have been acquired by Strike Point's largest shareholder, Ascot, Eric Sprott, and Skeena round out the other top shareholders.